Welcome to the 1823 podcast. I'm Dr. James Crossland. I'm Peter Williams, Senior Lecturer from Liverpool Centre for Advanced Policing here at Liverpool John Bowles University. And we are talking about the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Okay, good morning everybody. I'm Peter Williams. I'm a Senior Lecturer at the Liverpool Centre for Advanced Policing here at Liverpool John Bowles University. I'm joined this morning by my colleague, Dr. James Crossland, and we're going to be talking about aspects in relation to 9-11. In my case, I'll be focusing primarily on the implications um, for UK uh, policing, particularly in the area, in the specialist area of counter-terrorism um, policing, which has been um, largely shaped by the events um, of 9-11 and what has happened in the subsequent um, 20 years. And as a historian, I will be providing the broader context for why the 9-11 attacks happened and what has happened in the 20 years since then. Welcome to 1823 podcast. Peter, if I can just start, what were your initial reactions when 9-11 happened? Where were you? What do you, what do you recall? Well, I actually remember it was a day like it is today. Actually, was, um, obviously, it was in on you know in New York. It, people have all the commentators have spoken about how nice a day it was. Very much a summer's day, like it was. And it was a nice day here in the uh, here in, in Liverpool. And I was still a serving police officer at the time um, at a police station uh, in South Liverpool. Uh, I was a sergeant at the time and. The duty inspector came down to where I was working and said, um, can you just turn the television on? He said, it looks like there's been um, a plane has actually um, flown into the World Trade Center in, in New York. He said, I was there um, a few months ago in sort of during the summer months. So we turned the television on, the people that were there, and um, you know, we that was the first plane. And we actually saw the events live, if you like, uh, of the of, of the second, the second plane going in, and all the, and everything, the aftermath um, from that. So I, you know, I, I remember that day, that, that day well. Um, I probably reflected at the time and thought, this is going to change. This is seriously going to ch- change things about a lot of issues, really. But probably then I underestimated just how mm. it's going to impinge on uh, all our lives. I think most of us did in that moment. It was that thing where you know that something major has happened, but trying to figure out exactly what the implications are, I think everyone was scrabbling for that at the time. I remember thinking, because I had, um, I knew uh, who Al-Qaeda were at, at this time, um, and knew of prior attacks that had been committed, uh, the bombing of the USS Cole the year before, um, and the bombings of the embassies um, in Tanzania and Nairobi. And the thing that I remember thinking about was, um, how did they pull this off? Like what, (laughs) this was in the the parlance, it's a terror spectacular, you know, it it was designed to do exactly what it did in that police station. It grabbed all, all eyes, everyone was fixed to it, and panicked everyone who saw those images. Those images still resonate. We were talking before off camera about the documentary that was recently on, and just re-watching that, I got this real sense of just um, being taken back to this moment of real genuine confusion, um, which 
seems to be that's most people's reflection isn't it you'll be hard pressed to find anyone who was like yes i understand precisely what this is and how this is going to fan out did you get any sense being active police officer at the time we were you were there any sort of briefings were there any okay this is now has to something has to happen here or was there a similar sense of no it wasn't like that at all um although for me personally it was it was slightly different um but i'll i'll explain why in a minute but the um the issues uh, within the police service at, at the time was that um this was only three years after um the Sunday good friday agreement and for the sort of previous certainly for the the whole incorporated my service the issue in relation to um terrorism was related exclusively uh, to Irish dissidents mm-hmm. um and of course w- w- with with the signing of the agreement in in 1998 um there was a almost a sense of relief well that that's the end of that mm-hmm. and we can sort of get back to almost like mainstream policing now the uh, it, i think i can illustrate what i'm saying because um the legislation that existed in the UK at the time was was uh, the prevention of terrorism act which was passed in 1974 uh with the brackets temporary provisions as and, a response to the uh, as a response to the troubles exactly and the, and the home secretary at the time Roy Jenkins who was a labor um minister his uh, statement to parliament this was um a draconian measure but necessary in these unprecedented times so that's the way it was perceived mm-hmm. the issue of terrorism if you like it stood outside yeah. mainstream policing it wasn't going to be a permanent fixture it wasn't going to be it, it was going to be a exactly if yeah. this is a hump if you like in the road we we got we we've got to get over and then we'll sort of go mm-hmm. move back to normal so there was that part to it interestingly enough what a lot of people um forget about is is a a group that operated in London in the in the early 70s known as the Angry Brigade and they operated for about 2 years um very much a new left oh yeah in their motivations okay so the potentially would have been linked with like the Bader Red Brigade Mayanoff. and the Badamanov yeah. yeah okay fortunately from their actions nobody died although there was a lot a fair bit of damage and um Scott New Scotland Yard or Metropolitan Police had no specific terrorist uh, anti-terrorism or counter-terrorism units so they formed what was called the bomb squad okay now the bomb squad later became the anti-terrorism branch which is now counter-terrorism command yeah. so counter-terrorism police in the UK actually started because of the actions of the of the angry brigade mm. not because of the actions of the IRA which is the common perception mm-hmm. also when eventually Pete some people were arrested because of the actions of the um the specialized units they were prosecuted under legislation which was uh, mainstream criminal legislation like conspiracy to cause damage that yeah. sort of thing because there was no specific legislation mm-hmm. so within the police service there was that sense of it's over if you like we're moving we're moving towards normality also in northern ireland itself 
the government, which of course was led by Tony Blair at the time, had initiated something called the Patent Inquiry, which later became the Patent Report, which formed the basis for what is now the Police Service in Northern Ireland, a complete revamp of what was the, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So there was a sense, this is a new dawn. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're moving away from that. Me personally, because I'd come to this university and I'd done my dissertation into uh, Irish terrorism, that was my personal interest. And I'd read a book called The Spirit of Allah by an author, an Iranian called Amir Tahiri. Mm-hmm. And it was full of um, hints about Islamic dissidents. Mm-hmm. And it was from then I started to pick up on yeah. what became Al-Qaeda, which you first mentioned in the British New Papers in 1998, yes. through journalists by the likes of Jason Burke, mm-hmm. who writes in The Guardian mm-hmm. still, and The Observer. So I, I was sort of conscious that there was other issues out there. But of course, I, you know, nobody would have predicted as to what we've seen in the subsequent 20 years. No, the, the, there's a sort of tendency to retrospectively ascribe this uh, a sort of power and weight to Al-Qaeda on account of that particular terrorist spectacular. What's interesting about, and, and something that I often have to emphasize to students, many of whom, uh, the ones I teach now, were babies when 9-11 happened right. and, you know, have no pre-knowledge of that world, trying to sort of explain to them that there, there was a time when, um, you know, terrorism existed before 9-11. And even the the knowledge of the threat of Al-Qaeda existed before 9-11. One of the things that we often forget about in our assessments is that this attack did not necessarily come out of nowhere. There was um, intelligence around uh, FBI, CIA were aware that there were uh, uh, Saudi nationals who had come into the US and had taken training in in flight um, for planes knowledge of bin laden and his intentions um went back to 1996 if not earlier um there's a formation of alex station in 1996 within the cia to to find bin laden so there was already this this sort of pre-existing ecosystem if you like of an understanding that there's this threat out there and we should try to to nip it in the bud the problem was that the bits and pieces of the intelligence didn't all weren't all put together as i think with hindsight comparable in many ways to Pearl Harbor same same mm-hmm. thing happened where all the bits and pieces were there it was only after the fact you could see them all, all come together um, and so we get the the terrorist spectacular um, one of the things that I, I wanted to raise was what happens after 9-11 and we enter into the the war on terror um, which is problematic for a number of reasons um, well, let, let's actually talk about that a bit. Like the the concept of of the war on terror. The moment that Bush uttered that, he, he first said "war on terrorism," I believe, uh, just off the cuff, as he tends to or did do. And then he refined that a few days later in a speech uh, to Congress, where he said, "This is a war on terror." Um, and the second he uttered those words, that was leapt on by people who said, "This this this has got a lot of problems." not the least of which being you're declaring war on a tactic rather than a, a, a state. Um, how did that reconcile on this side of the pond with, with these perceptions of, of terrorism? You mentioned briefly before this idea that, that um, 
traditionally terrorists would be uh, pursued under as, as criminals. But now with the classification of the war on terror, all of a sudden they're, well, they, they become uh, un, uh, non-combat, uh, sorry, uh, armed combatants. And this hazy designation where they're neither prisoners of war and therefore can't be treated in accordance with the Geneva Convention and they can sort of be treated whatever way necessary. How was that, um, that that reconciliation of okay now now terrorists have gone from being criminals to being something else. Well, of course, you know the, the Americans don't define terrorism no. to give them that w- wiggle room mm-hmm. where they can sort of almost make a decision as to what what suits different departments within the American government define it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, we define it in the Terrorism Act two thousand, which was the permit legislation that replaced that temporary provisions. Prevention of Terrorism Act. So, in in relation to the UK, obviously we were um, we, we, under Tony Blair. We, Tony Blair, we were very supportive of the um, Americans, and the first military action, if you probably remember, um, which was from Pakistan into pa- into Afghanistan, was called Operation Enduring Freedom, mm-hmm. which was launched by the Americans. The idea was that they were going to ensnare. Al Qaeda and hopefully bin Laden, but of course they were able to escape via the Tora Bora Heights, which actually means dark caves. Yes. And of course, they knew the layout, the layout better than what what we didn't. They were able to, to um, escape that, which of course, as you you, you will know, James, Al Qaeda effectively scattered from where what the Americans referred to across that border as Al Qaeda Central. Mm-hmm. So the American counterterrorism policy, as, as you know, is very much military-led. The UK's response, even though we were supportive of Americans, is criminal justice-led. Mm-hmm. So what Tony Blair actually did in 2001, we pat in, in the light, in the aftermath of, direct aftermath of um, 9-11, we passed some further legislation legislation which was the anti-terrorism act etc and that basically just strengthened police powers and that sort of thing but also brought legislation in in relation to terrorist financing yes which which which, very which, which is very which is yeah. very much like the patriot act which, yes which no doubt we, you you refer to so and he also in this is the significance i think for uk policing he, he appointed the first security and intelligence coordinator which was somebody called Sir David Omond, who had been the director of GCHQ, the government communications, listening in station, if you like, in in, in Cheltenham. Now, part of his remit was to um, formulate the UK's counter-terrorism response, and that formulated itself in 2003 into um, the UK counter-terrorism strategy, which was still working towards with now there's been about three updates since mm-hmm. but that's what we've gotten people um listening and viewing this will probably heard we know it's in it's got the four pillars or strategic mm-hmm. campaigns as they call it mm-hmm. prevent pursue protect prepare that those those sorts of things and that was um the uh policy that the UK police forces in relation to policing and the intelligence services were now working towards, particularly in the pursue area, which was very much counter-terrorism because it's it's very much linked on intelligence. So we are going to proactively go after the bad guys, mm-hmm. prevent 
um, of course, is, is has been subject to yes. and is now still subject to another review. But um, prepare, for example, um, and protect are very much th- linked to things like this, anti-terrorism. Yeah. yeah. And we've seen a lot of those, of course, those sorts of measures in relation to physical barriers outside buildings, mm-hmm. changes to how what happens when we go through airports or mm-hmm. transport mm-hmm. hubs, those sorts of things. So that has had a profound effect on relation. And it also started to move policing, moving back into the mainstream where it's become a core element of everyday type policing. So the days of sort of where perhaps in my day, the role was to deal with more routine volume crime, that sort of thing. It's moved again because of um, 9-11 and because of we're working to the UK um, counter counterterrorism strategy. And there's been changes to that as well. And some which were forced or as a result of what happened in, in, in relation to 7-7. So we, we've got that facet of the war on terror, which is really the, the counterterrorism side and policing, at least from our perspective. The other aspect, which um, is one that historians are going to spend an awful lot of time thinking about, more so because, and I'd be remiss to not know that we're recording this uh, a little over a week removed from uh, Kabul being retaken by the Taliban and the and withdrawal of UK and US troops, supposedly the final withdrawal and the end of America's longest conflict. Um, that and the invasion of Iraq are the two, if you like, conventional military operations that are part of, uh, the two major ones at least, that have been part of the war on terror. It's interesting, something that, that struck me when I was watching the, the recent images from uh, Kabul, I was thinking about, um, and, and all the condemnation that's about the nature of the evacuation and everything else. And I was thinking about, uh, with the, the 20 year anniversary coming up, reflecting back on when that invasion began. And again, this is something that I have to explain to students because it's it, I'm not sure it quite sits, but America was seen as the victim by and large. Like there was a, a, a global outpouring of sympathy for America and a lot of goodwill. You had a UN resol- resolution passed, which said um, the threat of, of terrorism is a, 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 an international security threat. And it's and, and invoked basically tenets of collective security saying, you know, we need a, a concerted cooperative effort because this, this can destabilize international relations, basically. So this massive international response. And there were, there were obviously people who opposed the war in Afghanistan, but as compared to Iraq in particular, a lot more support for that particular campaign. Um, do you remember going back to that time, any sort of thoughts on, on what are the implications of these overseas operations for policing back here? Because the, the two things are connected. Oh yeah, very much so. Well, in in the case in the case of Afghanistan, um, just just to take that one, which Tony Blair was um, particularly enthusiastic about initially, um, there was there was the issue of the um, intent to prevent Al Qaeda to get the hands on WMD, yes, which was the um, which I'm sure listeners know was weapons of mass destruction, which of course. Um, the Americans in particular were concerned about that um, Iraq 
uh, was, was still in possession of because of the Iraq-Iran conflict. There's a particular concern, sorry to, not to cut you off, but just to clarify, there's a particular concern, if I remember, about uh, dirty bombs, about That's the right. use of um, yeah. uh, uranium. But in relation to um, policing, in relation to uh, particularly Afghanistan, what they intended to do was to get control of the crop of poppy. Mm. Now, as you probably know, poppy uh, eventually can well can form it into into opiates, and of course, it forms itself into what we know on the street, if you're the street drugs, as heroin. Mm. So they were trying to also control that and prevent um, AQ getting the hands on potentially that crop. Now, the world had opened up because of the wall had come down. So moving out of Afghanistan, um, narco-terrorism, we call it, they were able to move into those Takistan and Uzbekistan and all those people, and then eventually into, into Europe and have effectively flood the West with, with heroin. So that was very much part and parcel of, of what, what, what they um, were, t- were trying to do. Um, and of course, it, it was explained to the population back home was the fact that we've got to take this action. It's necessary mm-hmm. in order to keep our streets safer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, they can make people can make their own minds up in in, in relation to that. Whether or not we got we went around it, but that was one key element of it was mm-hmm. to get a hold of that narco um, mm-hmm. uh, narco. Um, you know the, the links with the, the the drug trade in particular. Yeah, yeah. So it's finding sort of different layers in in addition to the the general security issue and the idea that if you if you the, the operational premise being that if you go in you take out um, Bin Laden, that in theory is the end of Al Qaeda, which obviously wasn't even after he died in 20, uh, 2011. Um and by by kicking out the Taliban, you then secure the area, and that has this knock-on effect for the drugs trade, amongst other things, as well as in in theory stomping out one aspect of Islamist terrorism. The results on that have been mixed. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, um, and there is this sense now with the events of the last few weeks that we perhaps have come full circle with the Taliban now back, and this currently. Uh, uh, debate over what what exactly the implications are for that. Being a historian, I'm not going to try to try to say this is what's going to happen. Um, but to go back to uh, just thinking about the if if we're working on this narrative, which is out there now, which is that everything has ended up back at uh, with the the Taliban retaking Kabul. That's the end of that. We've got this sort of torturous circle that's brought us back to this after 20 years. Is there any sort of turning point you can see in the war on terror? Is there, is there, is there, are there moments you can think of that are particularly significant for our understanding? Yeah, I think seven, I think seven and seven, um, of course, what, one of the other reasons is, you know, why we, um, launched operation enduring freedom was to, was to, um, take possession, um, destroy the training camps. Yes. yes. Now, um, unfortunately, many of the training camps were in Pakistan mm. on that border of Al-Qaeda, as we refer to as Al-Qaeda central border area. Uh, and in, in those semi-autonomous states in Pakistan, um, 
you know, that was often seen as the breeding ground for Al-Qaeda. We sort of, that, that's well documented. But the important thing of that is, was the turning point for the UK, I think, was 7-7. Mm -hmm. Two of the 7-7 bombers, had, British nationals and citizens, had actually attended um, training camps in, in, in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Now, um, when 7-7 happened, um, you know, people can probably remember where they were, what they what they were doing. I've got a memory that um, there was a G7 meeting on, I think, at the time. I think it was in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh and, you know, that, that happened. And Tony Blair was sort of um, appraising people about what had happened. But in, in relation to policing, f from that, um, we form what we call the Regional Counterterrorism Units, mm -hmm. um, which are four regionally in addition to Counterterrorism Command in London. So there's five dotted around the country. And they're supported in the more rural areas by counterterrorism in, in intelligence units. Now, to come back to the counterterrorism units, for the first time, if you like, the intelligence services moved out of London to be part and parcel because they're multi-agency. Mm -hmm. So you've got, um, obviously, the police-led, um, but they, um, so they've got, um, obviously, specialist detectives, um, intelligence officers, finance officers, forensic people, those sorts of things, very much a self-supporting mm. type. type a proper role. devolution. Of, of Absolutely. And moving, things. although um, in terrorism operations, New Scotland Yard retained primacy throughout mm -hmm. Great Britain, um, very much, as you say, that's a good word to use, there was a devolution across yeah. there. And I, I think, particularly from the intelligence side, from um, pursue. I actually think they've been uh, a very good investment. I think they've stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, 2017, we had our um, major attacks in London and Manchester, but they were the first mass casualty attacks mm -hmm. on UK soil mm -hmm. since 7 7. Mm -hmm. Whereas we'd seen um, what had happened in France, France yeah. and in other main European countries, Belgium, places like mm -hmm. that, which I'm sure everybody you know can remember. So I actually think we we've done quite well there, and that was a good investment. They've stood they've, they've stood the they've stood the test of time. I mean, it's not just the pursue element, which is as I said earlier, it's proactive. It's very much where they've got um, people who are in the um, protect and prepare, where they are out advising businesses, schools, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, in the area of anti-terrorism. So I think that's been a plus. Yeah. Um, I think about the, the sort of, I guess, broader societal impacts of the war on terror and everything else. And I'm always taken back to the invasion of Iraq as this sort yeah. of, this moment where the goodwill I spoke about before with, with Afghanistan, such as it was, that that goes out the window. Um, the There is, I remember that there's, a distinct lack of support for Iraq. It's the it's it's um, the UN's advice on it is rejected. We later find out that there are no weapons of mass destruction. Um, it leads to, amongst other things, Tony Blair having to um, ride off. Um, that I think was a major turning point in that it it kind of turned those who were perhaps cynical about the concept of the war on terror um, became even more cynical about it. 
and I think that had a knock-on effect over people's general attitudes to everything from the ground up, from policing, from security, airports, to everything. There was this, I think it brought about this layer of cynicism, and that seems to have really continued, and and you know, is is kind of um, where where we're where we're up to now, and I think that's part of where the the reaction to what's recently happened. In Afghanistan, a, a lot of that has come from is this idea of, you know, was this all worth it? We put you on the spot here. But, and then again, fine to, to speculate within reason, but there is this sense now that we might be entering either a new war on terror, because as you say, the, the original idea of taking out the camps, taking out the Taliban and everything else, um, that's all now up in the air. Um, we have the the threat of a of a state uh, governed by a, a government that in the past has supported terrorism. We have no idea where that's going to get to now. But do you think that we might be entering into a new phase of threat from specifically Islamist terrorism, which is worth highlighting because in in recent years the worm has turned on that, and the advice from intelligence chiefs and and police has been. Well, white supremacist terrorism is the thing we should really be looking out for. I do wonder if we might be entering into a phase where there's going to be a renewed concern. I totally agree, and I tell you why I agree. You're absolutely right about the the, the white, um, the far right groups mm. that they've been identified as a threat, and um, there's only, as far as I'm mind, there's only one, maybe two, which are actually prescribed in this country mm. um, as as a designated as a terrorist group in relation to in 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 relation to the to the to the far right but that clearly has been a, a growing threat we've seen that but this particular event you'll know when i talk about rapaport's theory and mm -hmm. waves of terror yes um we are according to david rapaport who's an esteemed academic uh, we have been in this religious wave of terrorism since 1979. Yes. And this is the fourth wave, and each individual wave is shaped by a world political event. Mm. Okay. So, um, for, for example, to take this particular wave, the world events that change, which commenced this particular wave was the 1979 invasion by the Soviets into Afghanistan, um, the Iranian revolution in 1979, which obviously in, in, in Iran. And I have of the opinion that this is probably going to be re um, the religious wave mark two, mm. because I do think this decision by Joe Biden is going to have that political significance mm. where you've, as you've just said, James, you've got, a government like the Taliban, who we know have harboured mm -hmm. terrorists um, early, now in you know in, in government mainstream, each what I should say for the purposes of the viewers and the listeners, each wave lasts about 40, 45 years. And mm -hmm. David Rappaport is of the opinion that this current religious wave, prior to what Joe Biden did, would have ended by about twenty twenty five. Yeah. And there was some indications, probably, with what we were seeing, that he may have been correct. Mm. But I do think we are now going to enter into the fifth wave. Mm. And I do think it's got that, it's it's a decision of that magnitude which will have that significance. Mm. I mean, beyond the, 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 the 
the theor- theoretical um, w- way of putting that together. There's also the fact that in, in terms of how terrorism works and, and the, the importance of momentum and the importance of appearing like you, you are achieving your goals, if nothing else, the events of the last few weeks have been a, a massive PR coup um, for, for when we go back to the original intent of uh, Al-Qaeda and this, and this has been debated somewhat. Was it? Was it? Was the initial the the fact was that we were issued by Bin Laden um, in the nineties tended to to focus on this idea of I want to kick the the Americans out of the Islamic lands. In two thousand five, a Jordanian journalist put together fatwas and various interviews conducted with Al Qaeda leaders and and said, you know, there's there's something else going on here where there's this, and he put it together into this thing called the. I'm sure you're aware of the, the strategy to the year 2020, which was this idea that Al-Qaeda's goal was to create a terror spectacular that would be so horrendous that it would prompt a uh, decision by the United States to invade um, Afghanistan or, or any Muslim heartland. That would lead to a further spread of radicalization, a global jihad, and then from there we would get the economic, political, and military weakening of the United States. Now, if you, if if that theory can be applied as a, as a grand strategy retrospectively, then right now there's an argument for for jihadists to look at that and say, well, we achieved these goals, and that builds a momentum that that builds a sense that, um, you know, this is not over and we we are not in decline. Um, we we are actually in the ascendancy, and that is obviously very dangerous. Well, the, the, I agree with that analysis because I'll tell you the reason why I do. After um, I mentioned the Soviet invasion in seventeen hours, you mm-hmm. know that all ended because of the efforts of the Mujahideen. Yes, which translates to Holy Warriors in nineteen eighty nine, and that was the early days of Al Qaeda, if you like. And of course, they were also armed like the um, Taliban have now found themselves mm-hmm. in receipt of American armor. Yes. They were armed with Stinger missiles and all those things mm-hmm. by the Americans because they wanted the Soviets the Soviets out. And that's initially, as you probably know, Al-Qaeda got their hands on these sorts of, mm-hmm. these sort of weapons. But what that did, the defeat of the Soviets, if you like, who were perceived as a world power by the Mujahideen and across the Islamic world, it emboldened mm-hmm. people to move towards jihad. Yeah. And I think this will have that sort of similar and that, that is gonna be the that is gonna be the key issue, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, in in relation across the Islamic world, in relation to people, um, a minority of people, of course. Yes. A minority of people who are um, who lean towards mm-hmm. the um, that type of um, teachings in the Islamic, which the Salafism, as we, as you yes. probably know, where all that will come from, and I think that will, will it will have exactly the same effect. To try and bring these things together by way of conclusion, if that, and again, this is all ifs and caveats because we are living through this right now and we can't be sure of anything. But if, um, and we're, we're far from the only people saying this, this is, this is you know, uh, being postulated by a number of people right now that we might be entering into a, a new phase of, of a, a threat of that nature. Are we better prepared than we were in 
Well, I was asked that question last week, actually, by a media outlet, and, and the answer I gave was probably yes. I think, though, in the relation to the UK, I think all the public services were caught off guard, yes. and that includes the police and intelligence services. But what I would say, we've got the structures in place now mm-hmm. for us to respond far better to this. Um, particularly, I think, is our intelligence is a lot better. In, in which the end of the day, the way to counter terrorism successfully is via good intelligence. I mean, if you just look what happened, we started by talking about the, the IRA and what it was intelligence at the end of the day mm-hmm. that brought about eventually the Good Friday Agreement and, and that they were able to nullify their efforts. And I think we've got that now. Whether or not we probably need more investment resources, well, that's that, that's another issue. But I do think our structure is there, uh, and we're in a better, far better position to to respond to it. The difference I see, though, from twenty years ago, is what we've not mentioned is there's far more use, of course, of things like the internet and communications, yes. and it's in that area. Where I think we've got to, we will find the challenges. Yes, um, and that's, I mean, that is the, uh, to go back to a thing that all historians have this caveat when they're talking about the present, where it's like we don't actually know. But that is, again, something that is being reevaluated minute by minute, hour by hour. How do we actually work out um, the, the use of the internet by uh, radicals, for want of a better term? Um, and how can we? actually figure out a way to to get around the fact that communications is is something that that is so easy now for groups um secret communications encrypted communications that's an ongoing issue um and I, I would think i would think that beyond beyond intelligence beyond policing techniques i think there's probably a broader understanding now of the nature of the threat than there was 20 years ago and and talking about this the things that drive terrorism um the ways that that there can be forms of intervention um the the way the media reports on terrorism i just think that things have gotten a bit uh there's just a broader knowledge base there and i guess my hope is that, that yeah definitely to- I, I do think there's you know there's far more awareness as well amongst the amongst the public generally mm-hmm. in in relation to in, in relation to terrorism um, as I said initially, very much it was perceived prior to this as being an Irish problem, if yes. you like, because that's what most people had been socialised to yeah. for the previous 30 years. Of course, it ignored a lot of other things that were going on yes. and sort of underestimated the, the, the religious wave threat, if, if you like, put it that way. And I do think that is a case, but I do. we've still got work to do in understanding what motivates people what was it that motivated three 15-year-old girls to mm. leave East London and get on a plane to Istanbul mm. and end up in yeah. with, with ISIS? There's those sorts of things and mm. those sorts of motivations mm. which are going to be challenges, I think, going yeah. forward. Yeah. Well, can't think of a cheery way to end this, I'm afraid, <laughs> other uh, than to say it's been great to chat about yeah, this and reflect on it. Yeah, so. And um, thank you very much. Thank you.